Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. This is my friend Rondel. He is going to read the scripture from the book of Isaiah this morning. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do with my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. Thank you, Rondel. Rondel, you were not baptized that long ago, just right here. That made me happy. Well, probably like many of you, I woke up this morning to see just heartbreaking news coming out of Israel. You see, uh, you know, there have often been many, many, many successive years of, of skirmishes, of tension in the Holy Land, uh, and now it looks like outright war is happening between Israel and Palestine, and we just see our world is full of war. Um, uh, Russia and Ukraine continues this morning, and I, and I wanted to begin this morning as we read the Scriptures just to pause and to recognize that war is a daily reality for many people in our world, even in places that we've not heard of. We don't pay a lot of attention to. And so what, what happens when big people who make big decisions, you know, uh, do things like this, it's the small people who suffer. It's, it's the vulnerable, it's the poor who ultimately suffer the most. And so as we begin our reflection on the Scriptures or before we begin this morning, I want to read this prayer and pray this over us, uh, pray this over God's world. Lord, You who are the true King... Have mercy, we pray, upon the war-torn peoples of the world. These, Lord, you know and you see. Silence the warmongers. Scatter the bloodthirsty. Shatter the weapons of war and take pity upon the vulnerable so that true peace and justice might be restored. Pray this in the name of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Everyone says, Amen. Well, it's a bit of a grim passage assigned to us in Isaiah chapter 5 today, especially as, as you carry on. Uh, this, this prophetic utterance originally given to the people in Jerusalem is actually a sneaky bit of communication. So the scene, as Rondel read it for us this morning, the scene is set in Isaiah 5 verse 1. It says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard which is a lovely, innocent-sounding setup to this passage. I'll sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. 
The original listeners might have heard this setup, and they thought about it as like, oh, this is like a best man speech at the wedding reception. The vineyard then being kind of a metaphor for the bride, you know, an image not uncommon in the ancient Near East. They're hearing this as this is like a best man speech, and people are like, oh, that's great. Or you could think about uh, this setup as being a little bit like a country song, because you've got farmland, you've got the one I love, there's no mention of a truck, but we can like fill in the blanks. And the idea is that the song begins innocently, which is a little bit deceptive because as we make our way to verses 6 and 7, we see that there's actually a switcheroo coming and, and the tone is actually more serious than it immediately appears. The text says, my loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. So it's fertile, it's good soil, it's good land. We have every reason to believe things will go well here. The vineyard is planted on a hillside, which is a great location if you're going to plant a vineyard. You've got more direct sunlight. You're going to have thicker skin on the grapes. It's going to produce better tannins. You're going to have better wine. We think this is an idyllic, perfect situation. And then we come to verse 2. It says, My beloved dug it up, and he cleared the land of its stones, and he planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it. This has to do with security. Someone's looking out for foxes, looking out for the workers, making sure they're doing what they're meant to do, watching out for invading neighbors. He built a watchtower in it, and he cut out a wine press as well. So the, the grower is doing everything that he can do to set things up for success. There are no stones, there are good plants, there's strong security, and the grower is so confident that things are going to work out that he's actually put a wine press on site. He's not going to sell his grapes to someone else. He's like, I've done the hard work of preparing the land, of choosing the crop. I'm going I'm to be the first one to enjoy the benefits of my work. But in spite of everything that has happened, if you'll recall in Rondell's reading, despite everything that is, the landowner has done to set his vineyard up for success, it says he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. I'm not just trying to be funny. Bad fruit here literally means stinky. It means stinky fruit. Four of you will know this video. Worth your time. Man, no one knows this video. Wow. <laughs> Wow, literally no one cares about that. Thank you, thank you. The bad fruit literally means it's stinky. And the voice immediately transitions from this best man speech, this country song, to revealing that the tone is, is much more serious. It transitions into being kind of a courtroom scene. Verse 5, it says, Now I'll tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. So the narrator changes from, you know, writing about the one that I love and his vineyard to a kind of this, this courtroom scene. The owner of the vineyard is speaking and asking us, who are the readers, to be like the jury. We're, we're now going on trial, trying to understand what went wrong in this scenario. The owner asks, did I do everything that I could have done for my vineyard? And we, the jury, are inclined to say, well, yeah. Was it a good soil? Yes. 
Was it a good location? Yes. Did I get rid of all the stones? Yes. Did I start with good crop? Yes. Did I hire security to keep it safe? Yes. Did I do everything that I could do? And we, the listeners, the observers of the story, have to agree the owner did everything he could do for his vineyard. The owner says, well, we agree that I did my part, so we're just going to decide this vineyard was a dud, and we're going to hand it over to the elements. Would you all agree that this is a sensible thing to do? And we, the readers, seeing the evidence, just agree and say, that seems to make sense. So verses 5 and 6 explain how the, the narrator, who now appears to be God because he's commanding the clouds not to rain, does just this. He hands over the land to the elements, and everyone shakes their head, and they're like, man, what a shame that this garden, this vineyard that should have gone great, that should have produced awesome grapes, turned out to be a total dud. And then we come to verse 7, which we did not read, which is like the big reveal, the big switcheroo that, you know, we've been innocently listening to this story, and now we realize there's more to it. God, through the prophet, says, I've given you the story of God's people. They are the vineyard I spoke about. They are His pleasant acreage. He expected them to yield a crop of justice, but found bloodshed instead. He expected righteousness, but the cries of deep oppression met his ears. We now realize in, in the, the reading of this prophecy that the whole thing is a metaphor, that we've been innocently teed up only to realize that someone is being indicted in the process. It's the same prophetic strategy that Nathan takes with David when, when David has committed these atrocities against Uriah and Bathsheba and their family. And the, the prophet Nathan comes to David, the big man in charge, and says, let me tell you about something that's gone on in your care and in, in the people under your rule. There was this really rich guy who saw that a really poor guy had one lamb that he really loved. And do you know what the rich guy did? He went, even though he had flocks upon flocks, he went and he took that poor man's sheep for himself, leaving this guy utterly destitute. David is irate. This is wrong. He should not be like this. I'm going to get this guy. And Nathan says, you're the guy who did it. It was sneaky communication by the prophet. This is just what the Lord is doing with the prophet Isaiah. God's delivering a word of warning and judgment to His people who were His vineyard. And God clarifies, I had a clear idea of what I wanted from my people. In planting my beloved people, my vineyard, what I wanted from them was justice. We've got some clever wordplay here. The Hebrew word is mispat, but what I got instead was bloodshed, mispa. What I wanted was righteousness, sedekah, but what I got instead was cries of deep oppression, sedekah. Really, a cruel wartime strategy that's been employed by lots of people over time is poisoning their enemy's water supply. So, you know, so, much, so, many, so much of life depends on having access to clean water. Like even human trafficking in our world right now, if people only had access to clean water in their communities, women, would, usually women, would not have to go great distances to get access to water. So many forms of oppression and injustice happen when people don't have access to clean water, which makes it all the more cruel when someone spoils or poisons a water supply. This has happened all throughout history. Someone goes in the morning, you've got cotton breath in a cotton mouth, you've got bad breath, you're like, you need a good glass of water. I mean, I'm not a water drinker. I should be. 
but I'm not a water drinker. But I'm told that water drinkers wake up in the morning and really want an ice cold glass of water. Well, what a cruel thing to go and f- to this place where you're expecting something that's going to be refreshing, light, something that's going to give you life, and you don't realize that your enemy has put the carcass of an animal in your water supply, or they've poisoned your water supply, and this thing that was supposed to be a source of delight and sustenance and refreshment turns out to be the thing that kills you. And God is saying to His people that this is exactly what's gone on with you. I've planted you. I've tended you, I've cared for you, I've I've positioned you uniquely so that you can be a source of refreshment and a blessing to others, and you turn out to be the source of violence against them. And God observes the violence that His people are perpetrating. If you remember the whole story of Israel, the story of the Exodus, when the enslaved whom God rescues from the oppressors become the oppressors who enslave others, God notices And it grieves God's heart and His instinct for justice. Now, if you think about this, God is revealing His intended outcomes for His people. He has a goal for the planting of His people. It's righteousness, which which has to do with having just scales. And it's justice, which is like uh, not systematically oppressing the poor, not showing favoritism to the rich. Justice and righteousness together is like Eden again. God was trying to replant Eden in the middle of a fallen world. His end was a group of people that living salty, like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, living like a city on a hill. The way that in our little community that we express this is that we want to be a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. Everyone is building their life around something. We want to build our lives around the person, the work, the teachings of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that strikes me in the fruit that God expects of His people, the same that He expects of us, is that the fruit must be primarily practical. When we talk about a vision of the renewal of all things, that must ultimately be expressed practically. My friend Cheryl will get up at the end of service today and talk about a practical way to join in the renewal of all things related to refugees. But this is also at the heart of what I announced last week. If you missed that, I hope you'll go back and listen that we as a church are responding to the invitation of Jesus. He's, God has been so good in multiplying His kindness in our church that we want to share it with other people. We're multiplying and launching a new congregation sometime in the next year or so in the heart of the Pearl District. And a handful of you texted me that you went there this week, and you're like, that's an amazing place. And also some of you are like, wow, this is going to be reaching a different population than 41st and Harvard. You've seen what we've seen, which is both opportunity and need. And it's good and right for people who have been chosen, blessed, those of us who have been like the beneficiaries of all of God's kindness, to now share that with others. And it must ultimately be expressed practically. But a phenomenon of Christian spirituality in our world, or at least our part of the world in our time, is an over-obsession with one's heart, that is their feelings and intentions, with an under-emphasis on one's life. And I mean the actual substance, the practical realities of how we manage our bodies and our dollars and our words. 
You ever notice the contrast when someone says, oh, but he's a, but he's a good dude, or but he's got a really good heart, that when they say that, they're almost always compensating for evidence he's shown to the opposite? Like, but he's a good dude. Like, you don't want your sister to date, but he's a good dude. You know what I mean? They're compensating for something. This overemphasis on one's heart and the underemphasis on one's life expressed in practical realities flows from a misunderstanding of salvation. So if I were to ask you, like, give me an example in the Bible of where God sends us out to, you know, share good news, do good works. Some of you would say, well, the Great Commission. We love the Great Commission. Evangelicals love the Great Commission. Do you know the Great Commission? Matthew 28, the first half of it, we like in particular. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, this is only half of the passage, but this is the one that we like. And so evangelicals in our world at this point in time are like, got it. Make disciples, baptize people, understood. And so we move heaven and earth to try to get people to make a decision for Christ. Like, what do we need to do? Whatever we must do to curate an environment in which at the end of the service, someone will raise their hand, someone will walk the aisle, someone will fill out a card that says, I gave my life to Jesus, whatever it takes to get them to baptism. And we get them to that point, which is great. And we cheer as if it's accomplished everything that God wants to do in their life or in the world. It's like the person who crosses the starting line of the 5K and they're like, I did it! And then they veer off and then they go, you know, drink their beer and get their t-shirt. Like, no, you didn't even run the race, you just crossed the starting line. Or it's, you know, the activist who's really pumped about all the people they signed up to go vote, but then those people never actually exercise that privilege and never go vote in an election. It's like, yeah, that's so good, it's a good start, but we have to see it all the way through. If our understanding of salvation is limited to deciding to follow Jesus, crossing the starting line, or merely believing in Jesus, if, if we think that's the totality of salvation, then we will view the practicalities of following Jesus as purely optional. If we think all it is, is the whole Bible is just trying to get people to raise their hand, then we will find the Sermon on the Mount to be utterly useless. We need the first part of the Gospels because that's when we celebrate Christmas, and we need the end because that's how we celebrate Easter, but we will have literally no idea of what to do with all the stuff that's in the middle. We're missing the second half of the Gospel where Jesus says we are teaching people to obey everything that He commanded. The Great Commission is not just go make disciples and baptize them in the name of the triune God, but also to teach them to obey everything that He's commanded. And in the teaching and in the learning to obey, He says He will be with us to the very end of the age. We didn't see this same separation of one's heart and the practicalities of one's life in, in the, the early centuries of the church. Uh, someone who became known as Justin Martyr, he, became, he got that last name because he was martyred. Justin, writing in the 150s, spoke about an experience of life in the covenant community that's very different from ours with this separation between what we believe and how we live. He says, those who are found not living as he taught should know that they are not really Christians, even if his teachings are on their lips. 
For he said that not those who merely profess, but those who also do the works will be saved. For he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then he begins to enumerate some practical ways that people are expressing their conversion, their repentance. He says, those who once rejoiced in fornication now delight in continence alone. This does not have to do with whether you can control going number one. This is about sexual restraint. Those who once rejoiced in fornication now delight in continence alone. Those who made use of the magic arts have dedicated themselves to the good and unbegotten God. Quickly, I, I saw on the news this week, are you familiar with the name Kat Von D? Kat Von D, Kat with a K? She's on television a lot as like a tattoo artist. And she's pretty famously and openly big into witchcraft and the occult. And she's shown pictures online of like this massive library of like of, of satanic writings that have been a part of her home, been a part of her practice. And the darndest thing happened. She gave her life to Christ and she was baptized. And she burned all this whole library that she acquired. With, with Kinley just a moment ago, I, I asked her for three renunciations. Do you renounce the devil and all of his works? Do you renounce the flesh? Do you renounce sin? She says, I renounce them. I renounce them. I renounce them. This is exactly what Kat Von D did. She, she surrendered her life to Jesus. She renounced and cut ties in a very practical way, closing the door to the enemy with, the, with regard to the magic arts. It's amazing. Praise God. Justin continues. He says, we who once took pleasure in the means of increasing our wealth. What gets me out of bed in the morning? Increasing my wealth. He says, we who were once like that wanted to increase our wealth and property, now bring what we have into a common fund and share with everyone in need. We who hated and killed one another would not associate with men of different tribes because of their different customs. It's racism. Now, after the manifestation of Christ, live together and pray for our enemies and try to persuade those who unjustly hate us so that they, living with us according to the fair commands of Christ, may share with us the good hope of receiving the same things that we will from God, who is the master of all. It's not enough for one's heart to be changed, but he's a good dude. It needs to be manifested in the practical realities of our lives. This is what John the Baptist was on about in his, his proclamation before the ministry of Jesus. As the tax collectors and the centurions were coming out to them, he said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So repent and then take it to its logical conclusion by bearing fruit from that fertile soil. And this is where I think we would be wise to add some dimensionality to our understanding of this question, are you saved, or the topic of salvation. For those of us who are in Christ, we can really and truly say, I am saved. I have been adopted into the family of God. Romans 8.1, there's now no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17, I'm a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for me so that in him I could become the righteousness of God. 1 John 3.1, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we be called children of God. So on and so forth. If you're in Christ, you can say, I am saved. And this is a present tense reality. 
But as the author James Bryan Smith said, those of us who are candid will recognize that sin remains in me, but it does not reign in me. And this is why I must also say, though I am saved, I am being saved in a present tense progressive reality. That the righteousness that has been given to me in Jesus, been imputed to me through Jesus and what he did on the cross, God now wants to enact in me. He actually wants me to become a holy person. He wants me to be one through whom justice and righteousness flow. He wants us to do not only the first half of the Great Commission, repenting, being baptized, but also learning to obey all the stuff that Jesus said. The candid believer will be able to say with confidence, and the grounded believer will be able to say, I am saved. And they'll be able to say with sobriety, I'm still being saved. And we also look to the age to come, or whether Jesus returns or I die first, that I will finally and ultimately be saved. That this, this body of mine that is prone to decay, this heart of mine that is prone to wander, the Lord will forever rectify and heal when I see the one that my heart most desires. The struggle that has been ongoing for so much of my life and your life will be complete uh, when the, the scriptures in 1 Thessalonians 4, we will not all sleep, that is, we will not all die, but we will all be changed gosh, I can't wait to be changed. Those of us who have like the ongoing struggle of trying to be whole and well in Christ, what a gift it will be when we see our maker and our faith is made sight and we are ultimately and finally changed. But in the present age and until Jesus returns, the believer should be able to say, I am saved, I am being saved, and we know with hope I will be saved, I will be glorified and changed. But here's the thing that immediately happens when we add additional dimensions to our understanding of being saved is we recognize in the gap between I am saved and I am being saved, there is a chasm between the person that I presently am today, the one that people work with, the one that people live with, and the person that God has called me to be in Jesus. We see this huge gap between, you know, Scripture says we've got the mind of Christ, but I'll tell you, it sure feels like I've got the mind of John Oda most days, and I wish I could change it. We see and we feel the gap between who we are and who we're called to be. And what this does for us is it invites a posture and a practice of repentance. The catechism of our church teaches to repent means to have a change of heart, turning from sinfully serving myself to serving God as I follow Jesus Christ. And I need God's help to make this change. I don't know how I managed to make my way through the church and evangelicalism growing up that I have no association with this word repentance and shame, particularly for the believer in a sense of ongoing repentance. Some of you grew up in really harsh church environments where the message you got was, you are worthless, you are poop, it's amazing God likes you. And so this, for you, like when I bring up repentance or when we do a confession of sin, you're like, isn't this just like dwelling on negativity or this is like, I feel like I'm getting, you know, beaten up in church and I don't have any of this association between repentance and shame, particularly because I'm in Christ. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, if you've been given God's gift of righteousness in Jesus, we're free of shame. Like shame is a part of the past that needs to be crucified. That's like, that's not who I am anymore. And so repentance, ongoing repentance for the believer who is presently being saved is simply a matter of living in reality and telling the truth about ourselves. 
Uh, we need to repent as a way of our, as a part of our ongoing healing. Without the, the dance of I'm the worst, I'm a disappointment, I'm a loser. When we recognize the gap between who we are and who we're meant to be, the invitation for us is simply to name reality. And repentance is saying, Lord, I want to turn from that to turning to, to follow you with freedom and without shame. The Christian, the most mature Christian you know, will repent early and repent often, repent and repeat, you know? And then not only repent, which is a surrendering, but also a, a reinvesting faith in the Lord Jesus. To place our faith in the Lord Jesus is not just the thing that you do at summer camp when you're a kid when you want to become a Christian. It's not just putting our faith in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. It's putting our, our confidence in the ongoing provision of Jesus for the things that we need to live as Christians in the world. It's saying, I've, I have attempted to do this on my own. It has not gone great. So, Lord, I put my faith in you. Holy Spirit, I put my faith in you that you will be in me what I cannot be that you'll produce the fruit in me that I cannot possibly produce. When my nerves are run ragged, when I don't think that there's enough to go around, will you help me to believe that through the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwelling in me, there's more than enough love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. We not only repent, divest confidence in ourselves, turn from serving ourselves, to following Jesus, but also investing our confidence in Him, that He's the source, the, the ability that we have to live like Jesus and to follow Jesus comes from Him. And this rhythm of repentance and faith ought to be one that is for us just so familiar. And I think for the most mature believer with an easy laugh, being ready and able to repent and to put our faith in Jesus again is a sign of Christian maturity. And this is what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians, said, look, all of you who are mature, you should think like I do on this topic. How do I think? Well, we live by forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Dang it, I screwed up again. I'm repenting and I'm moving forward with Jesus. But God does very much want to address this gap. What does God want to accomplish in your life in Christ? God wants to free you from captivity to sin and transform you into the image of Jesus Christ. This is not of ourselves. This is a gift of God. May God give us the humility and the courage and the grace to be candid about ourselves, to acknowledge the ways in which we've poisoned our own water supply and to ask the Lord Jesus in His kindness to purify us, to transform us, to fill us afresh with His Spirit so that we can be the kind of people who are capable of being entrusted with His purposes for the world. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we come to You today asking for Your help. It's so hard to be a person Jesus, you know this, but in seeing your friends, you have to get that it's so hard for us to be people. And we hear the news of things going around the world, and, and that alone could overwhelm us, but we also just have the, the clutter and the disappointment in our own hearts that we're just, we're giving it all we got, and it's not enough, and life is not going in many ways the way we want it to. 
And so, Lord, I just pray that you'd give us the grace today to be candid enough to repent and just say, Lord, I, I recognize that life on my terms is not going according to plan and is not producing the kind of fruits that, that you say you want from me. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us, that you'd free and liberate us from all shame. We'd let go of those things that hinder us, the sin that entangles us, and that you'd help us to invest our faith afresh in the Lord Jesus. Jesus, we cannot make ourselves righteous, so we trust in your righteousness which you give to us. I pray that you will produce in us holy and clean hearts, that you'd make us be people who desire what is for our good and for your glory and will be for the sake of others. As we come to the table today, Lord, we ask that you pour out your spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. To make them be for us the body and the blood of Christ that we may be for the world, the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. We pray this in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.